If you're tired of the old way of networking, the business cards, the awkward conversations, and the aggressive pitches, but you know how crucial your network is to your success in life, then you're in the right place. Welcome to Build Your Network, the only top-rated show committed to helping you master content networking, foster real relationships, increase your authority, and build the network of your dreams. Listen in on conversations with world-class entrepreneurs, authors, thought leaders, and more as we deconstruct their best strategies for your success. So get ready to burn your business cards, ditch the name tag, and discover the new way to network with your host, Travis Chappell. Welcome back to the Build Your Network podcast. On today's episode, I'm sitting down with Dana Cornell. He is a certified investment management analyst and certified financial planner whose passion is to take the uncertainty out of investing and provide consistent returns his clients can count on. Dana has over 20 years of experience in the financial industry and Cornell Capital was born out of a need recognized to truly create consistent, predictable income and wealth creation. All right, let's get into the show. Hey, everybody, welcome back to the Build Your Network podcast. Dana, thank you so much for joining me on today's show. Hey, Eric, thanks for having me, man. Appreciate being here. Yeah, really excited to chat with you a little bit. And one thing that's really interesting about your story in relation to this show is how people focused your career decisions have been. There's a lot of people talking in the space of investing or in real estate or fill in the blank that it's a lot of money motivated decisions, which I'm sure plays a factor. Uh, but you were doing pretty well at the beginning of your career. You were an executive director at Morgan Stanley, yeah. managing some pretty large funds. Uh, what made you feel, uh, I guess, weary of that position and uh, thought you'd venture into a different direction completely? I, I get this question a lot, as you can imagine. In fact, they asked me if I needed mental health counseling. I <laughs> left the firm. Right. But honestly, it was during COVID. I had been fortunate to do pretty well at a younger age in that business reached a pretty high level of success in that corporate environment. And pretty uh, successful is managing like a $1.2 billion fund. Yeah. For people listening. 1.3, but who's, who's kind of here pretty well. I want them to know. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. Yeah. So yeah, big book of business for a guy at the time under 40 years old. That's not that common in that world. So all things outside looking in, it looked like quite a success story. And it was a great spot, a great firm, all of that. I had just kind of been kind of self-reflecting as I grew up through the business and one hand really looking at where did I move the needle for people? Where was I really making an impact? And that's something that's always been important to me, right? First, it's just kind of surface level advice and being all things to all people. And then, I mean, we can't sugarcoat it that that corporate environment, they have shareholders that's, uh, they're running a business and it's more geared towards, in my opinion, oftentimes it's more geared towards the firm than it is the client. So that along with two little kids at home and me having a shift in priorities of what's really important to me, um, I decided to focus on those two things. How can I make a deeper impact with maybe fewer people, but make more of, of that kind of deep um, connection with them. And for those two little boys that are counting on me, how do I show them how to make a hard decision and take the past, the road less travel, as they say, and jump out on my own. And, and it's been a great move since. Oh, I have to imagine as a parent to the level of freedom now versus two years ago, working at that level is probably immense. It is. Yeah. That was a big, a huge part of the decision for sure. 
Right. 100%. Well, tell me a little bit about what you stepped into because there's a lot of people and uh, I was joking with a, I had a real estate syndicator on just manic probably last week. And I was joking. I said, the funny thing about people in the real estate world is that all of them disagree with the other side's way of doing it. So you've got the people in single family that are looking at people in multifamily going, what are you doing? You've got multifamily looking at people buying uh, storage units going, what are you doing? Yeah. Tell us about the, the angle that you picked, which is pretty non-traditional route versus say the Grant Cardone's of the world. Yeah. So really when I kind of, again, I took a step back in Morgan Stanley and we worked with some some pretty high net worth families. And you can, you can find this information everywhere, right? But the wealthiest people in the world have really made their money in two spots, commercial real estate and owning private businesses. So when I decided what my niche was going to be, I knew my skill set. I'm not a developer. I don't want to be, but I had started investing in syndicated real estate myself prior to leaving my, my former firm, got a good feeling for that saw the benefits of direct ownership, but there was really no, and me being a certified financial planner, right? I'm used to guiding people and helping them create their path. There's really nobody in this space that does that on a consistent basis, right? You're either dealing directly with a developer or you're trying to find the information yourself. And it's just as readily available as researching a mutual fund or a stock or a bond. So that's where I thought I could really add value to people. So that's how this firm was created. And that's essentially how I position myself. So on one hand, I profile investors across the country. And on the other hand, I've developed a lineup and a menu of, of just A-class developers that understand the importance of the relationship of me bringing good long-term investors and bringing the capital to their project. And at the same time, I appreciate them being very good at what they do. Right. So we all can push the tide a little bit higher and the boats rise with it. So I'm really the guide or the intermediary between the investor and a private investment. Right. Well, you, I heard you on a podcast talking about how with the majority of things within the investing world, it's built in a way to keep investors in the dark on some level. And that's a lot of that's because people need to make money on the back end. So you've got these these people higher up that are scooping a little bit off the top there. Um, but it sounds like you're really focused like hyper-focused on transparency, getting people direct access into these deals, getting to see where their money's going. What are you doing that's different than say the traditional model where someone gives their money over and hopes that they get something or they give it over and blindly just say, okay, I'll take my, you know, 5% here or my 10% here yeah. moving forward. It's a great question. What I found is all of us as consumers, right? So even an investor is a consumer of sorts, right? The traditional wealth management model is a, in my opinion, more or less a done for you model. Mm -hmm. Meaning you come to me, you really don't understand it. We're not educated well growing up on finances. So everybody's a little bit kind of nervous about that. And it's a huge trust thing to hand over all of your life savings to somebody. Mm -hmm. So it's really done for you and you're putting a lot of trust in someone, right? I chose the, I think doing it with them and educating them on how it works to help them take control of that. And you're right, the transparency of the style of investment I use, mm -hmm. there's, there's nothing that they don't see, right? They see every number, they see how it goes quarterly. They're meeting the developers themselves. I mean, they have full access and that's part of my job is to make sure they understand that and get that through these types of projects. And I think that builds a level of 
comfort and clarity that you don't have in traditional investing. Right. Right. Not to mention it's backed by something you can see and feel and touch most cases. Yeah. At the physical location. Exactly. So let's talk about the actual like method and mode of what you're doing. Self-storage is an interesting angle specifically. I know you're focused in on, there's a lot of people that doubled down on multifamily within the last two years because people always need a place to live. What did you see in the self-storage space that made you go like, this is it, this is kind of the spot I want to focus in on versus say traditional multifamily, luxury real estate, all the other angles you could have gone. Yeah. And you know, I wrote a book jointly with my self-storage developer, Joe Vangelisi on this called Legacy Wealth Blueprint. And it's kind of a good synopsis of my view of it from the wealth management side and his view from the developer side. Self-storage in itself is an interesting marketplace because it's very dislocated. What I mean by that is still today, 70% of that business is owned by the mom and pop operator. And it's a lot of storage of what maybe you and I thought of, or at least what I thought of when I first heard self-storage as a business, right? It's kind of dingy garage looking type facilities tucked away because nobody wants to see them. No. It's very much becoming a changing environment, very front and center. We're building these on main thoroughfares. They look like office buildings. Half of them have offices in the front of them. And you coupled that with baby boomers aging out of that business from the mom and pop side leaves a huge advantage in the middle there for a kind of a middle market player to come in and take quite a bit of market share. Sure. Top of that, you add in all of your, everything everyone's been talking about the last five years, the the demographic changes of baby boomers downsizing and population migration to different areas of the country. That's why we focus in particular on right now, mostly new development to kind of go where that's headed and stay in front of it. Yeah. With, with the actual properties you're buying, you're not developing them from scratch. You're taking over and doing value add, right? That's your kind of strategy there. So in a lot of cases with the self-storage, we're actually developing ground up. Hmm. Okay. So we're buying, we're finding property, meaning the ground off market. And yeah, we work with guys that have done this for 35 years and this is their only business they've done. And that's the team I partnered with. So yeah, it's a new development. progression there that we're kind of pushing so far markets will change we'll adapt with that but right now that's been our main focus gotcha gotcha yeah and it's like you said the the idea is kind of dingy sketchy (laughs) spots yeah but it is like i was in uh i was in i think albuquerque we were looking i was with a multifamily investor there and we were walked by this building i was like this is a super cool building we're looking at all these different apartments what is this and i look up it's like a storage unit it's 20 you know stories high like bright orange textures this is pretty cool looking um so there's definitely and you've got refrigerated storage and all these different different yeah. angles that are pretty cool and i mean i have to assume like there's not a lot of the risks that come up say liabilities that come with having a place where people are living that's got to help such an efficient asset class and it, it doesn't take much as far as management costs are low pretty hard to to hurt a storage unit you yeah. know? so there's not a lot of turnover when somebody leaves you dig into it a bit further from an investment side the average rent raises quite a bit faster than a multifamily property mm-hmm. the percentage it raises every year is almost double and the average tenant stays more than two times longer than an average tenant stays in an apartment. Wow. 
And from an efficiency standpoint, when I'm looking to, to analyze an investment, hmm. all of those things make a huge impact to the bottom line. Yeah, that's huge. That's huge. Well, I, I want to talk a little bit about the relationship side. You've mentioned a couple different names already. I know I was listening to you on a show. You talked about a guy named, uh, I think, Gary Sherman. Uh, he's been with you for like, or he's been doing this for three decades. Yeah, sure. And and I think that's something everybody's looking to invest. Everybody's looking to start a business. It's looking to put their money somewhere. One of the first questions should be like, what have you done? <laughs> Who yeah. have you worked with? How long have you been doing this? And it's wild to me how many people pop up and say, hey, I'm your real estate expert, I'm your investment expert, I'm your crypto expert, whatever the category is, and they've got just another year ahead of you <laughs> on what they're doing. Right. So yeah. how important have partnerships, relationships been in the course of your entire career, but specifically making this transition into what for you has been, I'm sure, a learning curve? Yeah, huge, right? I mean, that's really the main deciding factor of who I do business with. Yeah. You know, I don't take the trust that my investors put in me lightly by any means. Right. And we could talk about those relationships probably the entire time you have. But when I'm looking at that and looking at where am I going to place their money, I'm looking at the developer as a person, right? Are you mm -hmm. a good person? Have you done what you said? Do you have actual experience? Or are you a self-proclaimed expert? Like you mentioned, right. tons of those out there. I want to see they've been through hard times. They tell you when they've failed. They tell you how mm -hmm. they're going to fix it. They tell you that they've paid people regardless, right? This is still real estate and construction at the end of the day. Things go off budget. Things go longer. Things go sideways. If someone tells you that it doesn't happen, they're not telling you the truth. Or they haven't been in it very long. Or they haven't been in it very long. Right. Exactly. I want to hear those times. I want to hear what you did when you know, something came out of left field or costs went way out of budget or interest rates changed. How did you adapt mm -hmm. and how were your investors affected? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I think inherently when you have a good relationship with people and you can be open and honest and explain to them what's going on, people are pretty understanding. People don't like surprises on the flip side, especially sure. with money. Right. So yeah. guys like Barry and you can't replace that kind of knowledge over 35 years and the amount of work they've done. And he's transitioned that to the group at Legacy Developers, who's my partners there on the self-storage. So it's been a great partnership. Yeah. Well, I do want to flip it to the side of dealing with clients. That's an obviously important relationship. But before I do that, you mentioned like what happens when things go sideways, interest rates changing, all these sorts of things. And anybody, anywhere, the questions are coming up, whether they're in this space or not, what's going to happen in the next two years, what's going to happen in the next year? Because it's been a lot of money pumped into the country in the last, uh, last two years, a lot of money that, where did it come from? <laughs> Who knows? A lot of questions like that. And so the really simple headline, is there a recession coming? Is the economy going to crash? All that kind of hysteria. And then there's the other questions, which are, are interest rates going to go up a little bit or, or things going to get a little bit tighter than they were? What are your predictions for really the next year or two? And how do you think that'll affect your current model? Yeah, I've been trying to kind of uh, speak about this quite a bit recently on social media and um, just trying to educate people as best I can, right? So nobody knows what's going to happen in the short term, right? We all know that. No one has that crystal ball. We do know some variables that are likely going to change what the next five years look like, and they certainly won't look like the last five. So you mentioned it. We've printed tons of money. That doesn't come without inflationary pressures, which we're already seeing. They say inflation 7% right now. I think 
anybody that's gone to the grocery store or filled their gifts, it's slightly higher than that. Right. And I do think, I mean, you can even look at all the major investment firms. What I'm more, we might have a short-term decline this year, but I think the bigger, more pressing concern for me with investors is what's going to happen over the next three to five years. Right. I mean, they're looking at publicly traded investments and you can see they're putting out their best case scenarios of the S&P 500 or equities at four to 6% over that time period. Well, the math doesn't really work if, you know, inflation is it, let's even just call it, let's give them the 7%. Say it's seven and you're not making seven and you're taking on that amount of risk to get there or even close, but you're still losing purchasing power, Mm. right? You don't have a fighting chance. Yeah. So that's why I feel so strongly about the investments I offer. Our income is seven to 10%, right? Mm-hmm. Tax efficient. So at least I'm giving people a fighting chance to keep up with that yeah. inflation with some upside on the back end of these projects to still stay on track for your goals and, and really get you where you need to be. Not the kind of invest and hope things work out for the best, right? Mm-hmm. This episode of the show is brought to you by Indeed. We are driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate is not to search at all. It's to match and match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need this platform, guys. I'm telling you, Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging candidates so you can connect with those people even faster. And it doesn't just help you hire faster. In fact, 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And look, guys, one of the things that I wish I would have used Indeed for is this matching service. You can search and search and search and search and search all day long, but to actually be presented with quality candidates, like 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 hiring a a recruiter for you that's presenting people that has actually done the work to vet them and uh, bring quality people in front of you, that work by itself is uh, the fact that it's done by a software instead of like a team of high quality recruiters is is pretty insane. So they leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day, which is why Indeed's matching engine is the best one that you can use. It's constantly learning from your own preferences. So the more you use it, the better it gets at doing the job for you. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility over at indeed.com slash Travis. Just go to indeed.com slash Travis right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed here on the podcast. Indeed.com slash Travis. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Yeah. Well, when I talk to investors who are being honest about the next couple of years, that's one of the things that gets brought up a lot is there's a lot of, you know, institutional investment firms and I mean, even just solo guys out there starting their funds and it, all of their numbers are based on the economy going up continuously. And yeah. I mean, even if it doesn't dip bad, the economy is going to dip at some, that's just how it happens. It goes up, it adjusts. And so, you know, yeah, I love that you mentioned short-term versus long-term, like long-term, it's going to be okay. <laughs> if you hold anything long enough, mm-hmm. it's eventually going to get back to a good place. 
But in the short term, what advice are you giving to investors, people that are putting money into this stuff? Is it just that prepare for the long game? Is it, this is a get rich slow kind of method. Don't rely on getting something in the next year or two. Like what's your dialogue with them? No, actually, I think my message is a little bit um, different than all of the above, right? And then to some extent, yes, long-term principles of investing hold true, right? However, I do think we're in times that most investors currently have not seen. And one thing, I'll highlight this because I think it's a risk that people aren't paying enough attention to. So when I came in this business and until we essentially hit zero interest rates, it was a lowering interest rate environment, right? Which meant bond or your fixed income investments did very well. Not only were you getting good income, but your investments were appreciating in value. So people have inherently positioned those and typically rightfully so is your more conservative investments. Well, now we're more than likely in a rising rate environment for an extended period of time. So what's happening is you're not gonna make as much income as you had thought or you used to. Rates rise, bond prices go down. It's an inverse relationship there. So that forces you to move up in the risk scale and go to equities to try and get at least a reasonable income, that type of thing. So my investment thesis, and that's really another big reason why I changed what I was doing, which I've always had a focus on alternative investments to complement your stock and bond portfolios. But I think that's increasingly important now, given that interest rate long-term perspective, right? Yeah. Are you going to get enough income to support your lifestyle that you can count on with some upside appreciation? Yeah. Might not be in bonds for the next 30 years. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. You so, need that cash flow coming in to. Yeah. So my uh, challenge to people yeah. is quite simply think of it differently. Right. Mm -hmm. Think outside of the, the box of traditional investing. Where can you go to, to still meet those goals? And that's how I've set up and structured this firm to offer those types of things. Yeah, that's huge. That's huge. Well, look, let's let's go ahead and transition here onto the other side of this. Because probably a lot of people, I mean, there's plenty in our show list, listening and looking for ways to invest. But there's also people who find themselves in the boat of trying to raise capital, trying to raise sure. money for their investment strategies, whatever that might be. And uh, look, I mean, 2020 was a extremely difficult year to get people to open up wallets. <laughs> 2021, same. And now I think people are interested, but there's still a lot of fear. And a lot of that comes from the uncertainty we just talked about. So what are your, what's your advice or your, um, I guess, counsel for trying to raise capital? And especially now, since so many people are trying to, <laughs> so many people yeah. are, are yeah. opening up these firms and trying to get people to uh, invest into these deals, how do you stand out and, and really build an audience that's willing to invest with you? Well, it, it kind of circles back to an overarching theme of yours, which is relationships, right? Yeah. How do you, how do you build those relationships? What I've done, and I guess I have been fortunate to have a lot of success, right? And most people hear a Forbes listed financial advisor, 1.3 billion, Morgan Stanley, this, they assume I came from that. Right. My dad's a construction worker. My mom was a school teacher. I literally started knocking on doors to meet people in a small town, south of Buffalo, New York. That was not a, I didn't come from a trust fund type world by any means, but thankfully to them, they taught me how to work hard and build relationships. So that's how I started. And I, I drive that skill set to amass that amount of assets I managed. I left there and essentially we've done that again in the, in the last 
14 months since I left my previous firm. Mm -hmm. So to your point, there are a lot of people that reach out to me and say, how did you do this? How can I do this? No. Um, a lot of really good business owners and real estate operators that are great at their craft, but stifled by being able to grow without some capital. Mm -hmm. So I actually started at the nudge of one of my partners, a course, an educational course that I just kind of unpack over four weeks of how to do that. And it's really just teaching them some little nuanced things of how to build relationships the right way, how to present yourself. But quite honestly, if I boiled the course down to one or two sentences, it's, it's, it's learning how to appropriately figure out what are the pain points and what makes that person that you're talking to tick and what's their model of the world. And then quite simply being a guide to help them find it. Right. How do you add value to their life? Yeah. And that's, that is as simple as I can put it of how, how to do it and how that course works. And then we just go into a lot more detail on how do you do that, right. And do it yeah. efficiently and tell your story the right way and build trust and all that kind of good stuff. So yeah. uh, that's what it comes down to. You got to tell your story enough so somebody hears it and don't focus on yourself, focus on the client or that person first and find where you can add some value to them. Yeah. Yeah. The value adds so important. And, and there's so many, and I laugh when I see friends of mine that have become very successful that come from similar backgrounds. One of my friends I mentioned earlier in the episode, he grew up on food stamps and like yeah. really struggled growing up, now owns a good amount of property and is doing really well. But he'll post a video of 60 seconds talking about an investment and they'll have people saying, oh, you're a trust fund baby. If I was born with a silver spoon, I would be here too. And you're a leech and blah, all this stuff that people like to throw out. And it's hard for people to believe that there's a way to leverage relationships and build relationships that will lead to an increased, yeah. I mean, better life all around, not even just financially. But I'm always fascinated by going back to the beginning. So like me, like you, like so many probably listen to this, we weren't born with all the opportunity, or I shouldn't say that. We weren't born with all the immediate opportunity, the, the rich uncle or the inheritance right. or fill in the blank. Um, so it can be hard growing up not having a lot of money or growing up having just not a lot of different opportunities or angles or certain educational things, like it, trying to audit yourself and find where can I bring value in the beginning? It's easier for you now to say, hey, here's some value. Like I've proven myself, here's some things. But for someone who's listening, who's in their early 20s going, how do I dig down and offer something to someone who makes 20 times what I make or someone who has three businesses or someone who has, has just gone through life? How do you audit yourself and find the value to lead with in a relationship? That's a great question, man. And, I, and as I look back, right, and don't get me wrong, we didn't come from, I didn't grow up in an affluent area. We didn't, like I right. said, I don't have a trust fund, anything like that, but I had a lot of gifts that my parents and my environment gave me. Mm -hmm. And I guess talking to that same type of person, that's exactly what helped me get to where I'm at faster, right? Because you kind of had to dig and search and just be curious, but be generally interested in what that person was needing or was asking for, or where you could find a niche to kind of fill um, or make their life easier, right? Mm -hmm. Just because someone has a lot of money, Oftentimes it brings a lot more problems too, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So not having everything handed to me all the time made me a little bit more creative in how I got things done and then in turn translated to how could I do the same thing for other people, right? Yeah. Quite honestly, 
you'd be amazed if you get past the insecurities of just being open and vulnerable and asking someone what's a pain point for you and how can I help you solve it? What's your ideal situation if you could fix that? And then build a skill set, right? Yeah. Make yourself valuable in the marketplace, yeah. right? So you compare, combine those two things and you'll be pretty amazed at what happens after a few years. Yeah. Well, the immortal philosopher, uh, Notorious B.I.G., more money, That's more right. problems. So there's a... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Got to find the problem. So, um, I mean, we've talked about education, talked about relationships. You've obviously done a great job in both at this point. We, we've we've asked everybody that's come on the show now, 700 plus episodes. Do you believe that who you know or what you know is more important and why? Oof, man, you're hitting me with some good ones today. I think there's um, probably two answers. That comes in two phases for me, right? So, and it almost flip-flops back and forth. If I didn't start becoming a student of everything, right? I was, I consumed myself with books and knowledge and beginning it was professional certifications to have credibility. Then it shifted towards personal growth and how to relate oh. to people. That's the majority of where I spend my time now. But the professional of what I knew got me to a different level of who I knew mm -hmm. and, and that grew who I knew to open up more doors on the other side, right? Yeah. So it's almost, I would always say probably if you have a big network out of the gate, right? Half the battle's done. You just have to go find the skill set. Yeah. So if I had to choose one, I'd go that way with it. Yeah. Um, but I think if you're aware enough and kind of see if you kind of build it as building blocks or levels to that, mm -hmm. you can have the best of both. Right. Have you combined the the who and the what a little bit in terms of, you mentioned a lot of personal development, obviously there's a lot of books and things related to that. Have you invested in masterminds or mentorships, things like that, or has it kind of just been organic relationships moving forward? All of the above. Once I really saw the power of what that can do to, you know, to really understand people and what makes people tick and we can go into Tony Robbins, six human needs and all that kind of stuff. But when you kind of internalize that and you can make that part of your natural skill set that you don't have to consciously think about, right? You just kind of know it, can operate from there. Once I started to get a taste of that, I made that my passion. I, I love that kind of stuff. So the answer to your question, yes, I pay. I'm in masterminds. I have personal coaching. I have professional coaching. I believe wholeheartedly that's a 10x return on any of that stuff, even down to the books. I'm frantically ordering on Amazon and Audible all the time and forgetting that I even ordered it, that kind yeah. of craziness. But that to me is never an expense. Even yeah. when I had to stretch to get in a mastermind, right? It all just hits you to a different level. Right. Do, do you think that comes from mindset going in or do you think, because that's one thing that people look at and go, man, I can't imagine spending five grand or 10 grand or Travis with the show. I mean, he spent like a hundred yeah. grand on a mastermind, which is like, you know, what, yeah. when he did that, I was like, all right, that's a choice. That's a lot. But, and then you have people that go into masterminds, sometimes the same one, though they all spent five grand. Some will say it changed their life. Some will say that, man, what a waste of money. Do you think it's more mindset going in or do you think it really does go down to finding the perfect fit for you? So I, I do think you need to be in the right group, right? Because I've been in groups that haven't added as much value to me personally. I will say when you're in the right group, there's two things in my opinion that happen, right? Knowledge and expanding 
really your view of the world and what's possible. That to me is what, if I think of my life and evolution of that as going up a long staircase, right? Trying to get to the top, that allows me to jump five stairs, right? And then I see what's possible and what others are doing. And I look at them and go, man, I'm reasonably smart. I can work hard like them, right? Yeah. You take little pieces from these people. How did you do that? And how did you get there? And then actually your thought process is 10 times bigger of what you want to accomplish. The other thing I think that's probably not talked about enough that really helps me in masterminds is the accountability. Mm-hmm. I played sports growing up. I'm very competitive by nature. I get in that kind of room and I want to be one of the best in the room, right? Yeah. One of the most successful. That alone is enough, that accountability and the camaraderie. You get like-minded people that push you further and faster. That's valuable, right? You're, yeah. who, who you're surrounding yourself with makes a huge difference. You hear people yeah. talk about it all the time. I've lived it. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, that's one of the things, I mean, some of the biggest pieces of value in mentorships or in masterminds is like, it's not even the correct quote unquote curriculum or the talks like it's literally eating lunch with somebody who's doing something that you want to do. They're a year ahead of you in their business and they share some nugget that's secondhand information to them that changes the way you think about things or same thing with mentorships. Like it's just knowing because a lot of, I mean, you talk self-development, like a lot of what Tony Robbins says, we know, like we all know if you wake up, grateful, you're going to have a better day. We all know if you write down a list of things you need to accomplish, it's going to help you. you all, we all know all these different tools, but it's having someone to make sure that we're doing it. It's like reminding ourselves every single day that repetition is is what helps. And so, yeah, I, I, I love that answer. I think there's so much benefit to just getting around other people and having that camaraderie for sure. Well, look, I, I could talk about this all day, but I'm going to move us into our random round. I want to get a couple quick answers to some kind of quick questions and, and then we'll close out the episode. First and foremost, what profession other than your own do you think it'd be fun to attempt? I mean, fun to attempt. I, I mean, of course, I grew up loving sports. I'd love to be a professional athlete. I didn't have the uh, physical genes. Some of my dad shorted me out on that too. So hopefully he listens to this and I'll get an earful from that, but. Do you have a particular sport you would have loved if the genetic lottery had been in your favor? Yeah, loved football, man. Played football in college, division three level, um, competitive enough to be fun and hurt myself plenty of times to still remember what it feels like today at 40. But yeah, the, the love of competition, that's what translates to what I do now, right? right? How can I grow? How can I help? How can I build a team? That type of thing. So yeah, that's the first thing that comes to mind for sure. Gotcha. If you could sit on a park bench with anybody past or present and talk with them for an hour, who would it be and why? Mm-mm. I've always kind of thought about, I'm sure most people say someone famous or somebody very influential. I guess if I had to pick somebody like that, it would be JFK. He's mm-hmm. always been super fascinating and kind of inspirational to me. But the first thing that came to my mind was both of my great grandfathers. Right. Two guys I never got to talk to, just kind of see where we came from, how they shaped the family. And I do believe that follows family lines of who you're made of and how you operate. So, you know, maybe, maybe those three guys in one bigger park bench. 
right? How do you like to learn best? Is it books, blogs, podcasts, masterminds, videos, mentorships, courses? What's your favorite way to, to learn? I usually lean towards anything audio hmm. if I'm reading or if it's, if it's a book, I'll listen to it. Then I read it and I listen to it again. That's kind of my way to, to really ingrain it. Love being in person, love being immersed in it. Those are really my two, two tops if I had to pick. Sure. Give me a glimpse of your morning routine. So usually it's me trying to get two little boys ready to go to daycare or whatever they're doing for the day. But I try and get up a little bit earlier. That's always a work in progress for me. I'd love to be a morning person, but still work in progress. But I get up early enough, read a little bit, just kind of get my mind going so I don't jump right into the day time with the kids. Right. And then I kind of shift gears and put my, my armor of work suit on and get after it. So that's pretty typical. What's your go-to pump up song? I'll listen to some nineties rap all day long, brother. (laughs) There you go. What is something that you're not very good at? That's probably a long list too. Details or tedious work. Mm -hmm. That's why I surround myself with the team I do. Yeah. Right. I can do it as long as I need to, but that's something that'll wear me out pretty quick. Yeah. Well, I got to ask this follow up to that question because this is something that everybody has a slightly different take on. So you've got the Gary V's of the world that go, if you're not good at it, screw it. Go focus on what you're good at, hire that out. Don't touch it. Never get better at it. Then you have the other people that say, if you have a weakness, it's kind of the athlete mentality. You have a weakness, build it up, work on it. What do you think the balance is there between outsourcing the things that you're not naturally gifted at versus doubling down and trying to improve yourself in those areas? So I try and life hack that stuff, right? So I, I know where, I just know how I operate, right? If I try and force myself through it all, it's going to be very frustrating for me and my energy and time is spent by their better places. So I'll surround myself with somebody that can 80, 20 rule that stuff for me, but then download it all to me. Mm-hmm. Right. And it saves my time and my stress load of, of forcing myself to do something. I just know I'm, I'm not going to enjoy. So right. uh, I, I guess I'd play somewhere in the middle there. Yeah. Yeah. I've been adding that question a lot more into these That's conversations because people, cool. everybody's got that totally different approach to it. So I appreciate you sharing that. Last question here. I know you've got, you mentioned your book. I know that you've got a course, definitely let people know where they can check that out, but where's the number one place if someone wanted to connect with you right now on social media, where would be the number one place to do that? Yeah. I mean, you can find me on Facebook or Instagram, just at Dana Cornell. You can find the course danacornell.com. Cornell is spelled just like the college. There's a tab there for the master class. But my main CornellCapitalHoldings.com is our website for the firm. But you're going to see everything linked to my social media. So Instagram's yeah. the best spot. Yep. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Dana, for joining me on today's show. I really appreciate it. And uh, thank you so much for, for giving your time to the show. It means a lot. Eric, it's been, it's been fun, man. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Thanks so much. That's it for this episode. If you want to connect with Travis and other like-minded people who also listen to the show, then you're going to want to head over to travischapel.com slash group to join his free Facebook group, Podcast to Profit. Travis will see you there. And remember to leave every relationship better than you found it. 
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.